Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 18th, 2021. Coming up, we learn about a new analysis method for using genomic data to predict risk for many common diseases. But first, some of the recent news in science. Those high-pitched squeaks are the sounds of bats flying around in the evening. Bats determine where things are around them by using those squeaks. Contrary to common belief and common sayings such as blind as a bat, bats are not blind but actually have very sensitive vision they use to see in dimly lit environments. But When it is really, really dark, they use those squeaking sounds to help them find their way as they fly around and catch food. This is called echolocation. And like the word says, they use echoes of sounds they make that bounce off other objects back to their ears to figure out where things are and how far away they are. Echolocation is like sonar, that ping sound you might have heard in movies and TV shows with submarines. Submarine sonar typically is in the frequency range of 100 to 10,000 hertz, or cycles per second. Bat echolocation frequencies can start at 10,000 hertz, but go more than 200,000 hertz. Human hearing range is typically below 20,000 hertz. To figure out how far something is from an echo, you need to know the speed of sound. Then if you multiply that by the time it takes for the echo to return back to you, you can calculate the distance. But how do bats use echolocation to figure out distances to things? They certainly don't go around carrying calculators and watches to time the echo and calculate the distance. Do bats learn this skill as they grow up? In other words, do they figure out by trial and error how far away something is based on how quickly the echo returns back to them? Or are they born with that instinct, that sense of distance already in place? Another way to put it is, do bats have an innate understanding of the speed of sound, or is it learned? To figure this out, researchers compared two groups of bats— one group raised in a helium-rich environment, and another group raised in normal air. Why helium? Well, other than making your voice sound funny, remarkably more like a bat, the speed of sound is almost three times faster in helium than in normal air. This is because nitrogen and oxygen molecules that make up the bulk of air are heavier than helium atoms, so they don't oscillate back and forth nearly as quickly. And that oscillation is what pushes the sound wave through the gas. If bats 
learned the speed of sound based on their environment, then the bats raised in a helium-rich environment would misjudge distances when put in a normal air environment. They would think objects were farther away than they actually are. And vice versa for bats raised in normal air and then put into a helium-rich environment. What the researchers found was that both groups of bats, regardless of which environment they were raised, misjudged distances in the helium-rich environment and correctly judged distances in the normal air environments. Their echolocation skills appear to be genetically hardwired to know the speed of sound. These results were published last week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in a paper titled Echolocating Bats Rely on an Innate Speed of Sound Reference. For How on Earth? This is Joel Parker. Genevieve Wozik is a geneticist and epidemiologist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Her research focuses on figuring out what makes people susceptible to infectious diseases and how they respond to vaccines. She welcomes the genetic complexity in large, heterogeneous populations, developing methods to use the massive amounts of information in large genomic data sets. Today we talk about her work on standardizing what is called the polygenic risk score. This is a composite risk factor extracted from information on many individual genes that contribute to a disorder or genetic character. Welcome to the show, Jen, and thanks for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the work that you've done with what are called polygenic risk scores, I'm going to give just a little background for our listeners because it's kind of a complicated subject, but it's really interesting and I think it's really important right now. So way back in the genomics dark ages when I was mapping genes, we had a few what we called markers on each chromosome. And you can think of those markers kind of like the interstate exit markers that give you a mileage location and some information about where you are. So when we tested animals or people for a disease or a behavior even, we then correlated the presence or absence of the disease with the presence of a certain type of marker. But we only had a number, a small number of markers. And so the correlations, which theoretically could be used to predict the risk of a disease like heart disease or cancer, were pretty weak. But now there's thousands or even millions of these markers on each chromosome, and it's becoming feasible to make realistic risk predictions, which are called polygenic risk scores. And my guest today, Dr. Genevieve Wojcik, has developed a method for standardizing these scores. So Jen, can we start off by talking about why we need so many of these markers to develop an accurate prediction? Sure. So. You know, the polygenic risk scores came out of um, 
really the, the ability for us now to map, as you described, across the, the genome. And so what, what makes it a little bit different from sort of the standard genomic testing that's being done in clinics now and genetic counselors and genomic medicine is that instead of having a small number of genetic variants that give you a large amount of risk, um, now we have the ability to look at how um, individual markers across your entire genome, each individually, which might give you a little bit of risk, sort of accumulate um, into one sort of um, sum of your, of your risk towards a certain disease or outcome. And so this has been a fairly recent um, explosion in the field in terms of a lot of folks doing this research. And um, I should note that this is a collaboration between a, a few separate entities, including um, what I'm part of is a clinical genomics resource, ClinGen, which is an effort to um, really do a lot of research within clinical genetics medicine, and then also a collaboration with the PGS catalog, which is the Polygenic Score catalog. Um, and so what they were noticing is, you know, the first thing that you want to do when you want to compare how these risk measures even perform, how useful they are in the clinic, is to compare them with each other, see which one does better, which one does worse. And so when the PGS catalog and we were looking across these scores, we noticed that there's a large number of scores and publications that didn't give us enough information for us to really be able to even assess how well they did. There was enough information to tell us, you know, who should the score be used in? Um, in what context is it useful? And, and that really is important for us when we're thinking of the next steps translation into the clinic. So the, this whole project was really born out of that gap we saw in, in the field where there wasn't really a, an agreed upon set of guidelines that were universally adopted at that point. So it sounds like that once these standardizations become applied, then anyone, particularly in the future clinicians, could go into the catalog pull out a study or several studies that have relevance to the kind of disease they're working on, and then um, just simply pull up the score? That's, well, they'd have to base it on, for an individual patient, they'd have to base it on the markers that their patient had, and then compare that, the score for an individual, to the score from past studies? Yeah, so I think you know, we are probably a few steps away from this being um, Sort of that scenario where a clinician would go into the database and pull things up and, and that's because a lot of the research is being done right now in the sort of a developmental a development stage where you're trying to build this risk calculator uh, with population level resources and so you know the reporting standards that we talk about we really don't touch upon clinical utility clinical effectiveness you know these different measures that would be more appropriate for the clinic we're really talking about the foundational aspects of the study of the studies and the and the methods um, to sort of better enable things to happen downstream that would eventually lead to that. So, you know, for example, you do different studies and you want to translate your genome-wide association study into a risk score, um, but you you make a certain number of assumptions due to statistical methods and the availability of data in order to create this score. Now, if I wanna compare the score that you created from a score that my friend created and say, okay, which one does better? I sort of need to know that we're on an equal playing field or that we're even trying to predict the same thing. And so this is sort of at the stage that we're at right now where we're benchmarking um, across these different scores. Now there are exceptions. There are certain disease areas um, where 
they're a little bit further along in this, let's say some of the cancer areas and cardiovascular disease, um, where they are at the stage where they can sort of roll it out in the clinic and sort of do those testing, which also other consortium and research um, entities are doing as well to try to push this along. Um, but this sort of paper was really looking at the foundation and saying, you know, we really, we know you want to do all this research and we want to do this research that will have real consequences and real help for people, you know, in the clinic and for their health. But we can't get there until we know what we've all done and we sort of have all, you know, the cards on the table. Um, and so that's sort of where we're coming from for, for this. Right. So that makes perfect sense that we want everybody to be on the same page when we're discussing these studies and applying the studies. So, um, yeah, let's go back to some of the basics then. Um, with all these numerous variants, you said that the, the risk score is kind of a sum and it's uh, um, it, I understand it's a weighted sum, so we'll come back to that. But um, there's you, you might put in thousands or even many thousands of these markers, which are now called variants, into your score. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so polygenic risk score or polygenic scores, um, the term really refers to just more than one gene, so numerous genes that are involved. And so it could be on the order of tens of, of variants across several genes into the risk score. And there are several of those that are that do really well in terms of predicting risk. Um, and it could be up to millions of variants across your genome where you sort of put everything that you can map together and see if that does better for your particular outcome. Um, so it really does vary and, and it really depends on you know, how genetic a trait is. Um, if you know that only a certain number of genes are involved in it, then maybe you only need to look at those. If you think that way more, uh, you know, of your genome is involved, then you would include maybe the whole, the whole genome. Um, and so, so it really does vary right now, sort of across the board in terms of orders of magnitude. Right, so in the paper, you talked about an example of using these genetic risk scores to assess a risk for breast cancer, and there were sort of um, multiple levels of assessment. Could you talk a little bit about those levels that you can apply? Yeah, so I, I wanted to sort of say up front that I, I do not have an expertise in breast cancer. That's sort sure. of, um, yeah. you know, I would like to, I would like to shout out my co-authors who are really taking the lead on that because those are, you know, there are several co-authors on the paper which have um, expertise in this area. But, you know, there are, I, I, I'm, so for breast cancer, I think it's really important for us to note that it really depends on what exactly you're trying to predict, whether it's sort of the uh, diagnosis or, or prediction of your development of, of breast cancer itself, prognosis, treatment options. Um, in the paper, we do describe a few of those different um, areas. Polygenic risk scores can help to give some insight into the risk of developing. Right, right. Well, let's talk about something that is probably closer to your heart, which is um, susceptibility to infectious diseases. And you've done work on that. And so are you using polygenic risk scores to assess that? So no, not right now. So I think that with infectious diseases, it's infectious disease is um, a sort of a, it's a little bit more, uh, there's an added layer to it when compared to a lot of chronic diseases. So for infectious diseases, so if we go back to chronic diseases like heart disease, right? Everybody has a heart. So you could theoretically develop heart disease. For infectious disease, not everybody is exposed to the pathogen. So you have to both be exposed to that pathogen and develop the disease 
in order for you to look at that genetic. So you're, the way how you compare things really differs. Now, there are certain, you know, we, we look at infectious disease and in terms of risk, there are certain markers that um, have been shown to be really predictive on their own, not necessarily a polygenic risk for, but a single marker for treatment, such as, um, you know, if you're on therapy for hepatitis C. And these sort of are, are being rolled out in the clinic as sort of these single markers. But for infectious disease, I think it's a little bit more, maybe further, you know, it, it's a little bit further removed from where the polygenic risk score community is, is because, you know, I come from a public health background, I'm in the Department of Epidemiology. And so I guess the thing that I come back to is if I were to develop a polygenic risk score for an infectious disease, where would it actually help people? Where would it actually help keep people healthy or, or treat them or things like that? Um, and right now for a lot of the infectious diseases that I work on, the focus is more sort of a few steps back and more of identifying which genes are involved, which pathways are involved, helping to generate hypotheses, which will then be you know, followed up by colleagues of mine in the wet lab to sort of pinpoint what part of the gene and pathways. And so you know, for infections, I think it's a little limited right now for polygenic risk scores, mainly because there isn't as much of, a, of an opportunity for utility in the clinic right now, um, since we know really what prevents infectious disease, it's just keep you from being exposed to the pathogen. Right, yeah, it sounds like the environmental component in disease susceptibility is much larger than the environmental component in susceptibility to other chronic diseases, for instance. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, you know, there are a lot of environmental components in cardiovascular disease in terms of lifestyle right. um, and, and environmental concerns, but, um, I think that there are there are also hereditary versions of cardiac disease you know, that, that are important to note. Well, that doesn't really exist with infectious disease, um, just because you have that necessary sort of other entity in the pathogen that you need to be exposed to. Right, exactly. And I think this is a, kind of a, a maybe a surprising area for the listeners to this show that hasn't been publicized a lot, that there is a really large genetic component to just about everything. I mean, I studied alcoholism, which is seen as a complex disease, as is cancer or heart disease. And to think about um, characteristics or traits like that as having a big genetic component, but it's really widespread. It's very diffused across the genome. And that's what your recent paper was trying to get at is how to use all this different information. And so I'm, I'm curious about how you might select or weight different um, alleles or variants that might be more useful than others in developing the risk scores. Yeah, so, so polygenic risk scores are typically built upon, you know, there's a whole foundational part before that, which is the trait mapping. So where you're going to look across the genome or across a set of genes to see, you know, what, what are the differences between folks who have the outcome of interest and folks that don't have the outcome of interest. And so these are typically right now, a genome-wide association study is a way of looking sort of agnostically across the entire genome. And, you know, for, for a lot of these studies, what you're doing is you're saying, you know, I recognize that there are environmental differences between the cases and controls or folks at different levels of this outcome. But if we can either randomize the groups for those things or control for them, what is remaining? What's left that would explain the differences between these, these sort of outcomes? 
And so a genome-wide association looks and says, okay, do cases have more of a copy of a variant than the controls do or vice versa? And so what you're doing is you're taking those mappings, um, not only in terms of identification of which variants are related to the outcome, but also how much they matter. You know, do they only give you a little bit more risk or is it a lot more risk? Does it triple your risk or maybe only doing it, you know, a little bit over what you would normally have for baseline? And so when you're looking at this mapping across the entire genome, you'll have different variants be worth more than others, sort of more influential to that risk than others. And so you'll take those weights and you'll um, take them over to your polygenic risk board development um, steps. And what you'll say is, okay, I know that some of these variants are worth more or are more meaningful for somebody's individual risk than others or their relative risk. Now, you know, there's a lot of different steps that go in in terms of to account for the fact that not all of these markers are independent. You have to deal with some correlations between them and upweight or downweight to deal with that. But really what you're doing is you're taking that, that knowledge base from a genome-wide association study or a trait mapping study where you already know which markers matter more than others and you're combining them in the best way possible to get at the best way of discriminating between cases and controls to determine which are cases and controls. So, you know, that's sort of the, the, the pipeline that you're going on um, to develop this one number, which sort of summarizes the risk across the genome. Right, yeah. So for the listeners who like me are very concrete operational types, in, in these genome-wide association studies, we're taking a really large group of people and looking at a really large number of markers for a specific kind of outcome, like let's just say cardiovascular disease or maybe even heart attacks or a specific kind of cancer. So give us an idea of the population size in some of these studies and the number of markers that you would look at. Yeah, so, so this has actually changed a lot in the past, I would say five years. Um, you know, when I was a graduate student, we were working on the order of thousands of individuals. Um, now there are studies being published and, and, and being conducted that are on the order of a million people where you're looking at, you know, different, different outcomes. Now for specifically cardiac outcomes, it might be in the orders of hundreds of thousands of individuals you're looking at. Um, but it really has our capacity to do this research has really increased exponentially over the past decade. And so you're looking at maybe a million or two million people, millions of people, and then you're also looking at millions and millions of variants across the genome. So, you know, when you're doing just gen genotyping arrays where you're directly measuring uh, information, the genetic variants, you can go on order for almost two million different genetic variants across your entire genome. Um, but we have resources now to impute, sort of to fill in the gaps uh, between those, those highway signs that you were talking about. And so we can fill in the gaps for that. And then we go up to tens of millions of variants that you're looking at across the genome. So both in terms of people and the variants, it's on the order of, of millions at this point. That's really remarkable to me coming, you know, from a few decades ago when we had six markers on a chromosome. It's yeah, really amazing. <laughs> so um, if you could look into a crystal ball, when do you think this will be widely applicable in terms of, you know, predicting risk for a single individual. Let's say, you know, they, somebody that had a family history of heart disease and they wanted to know based on their gen genetic information, what their individual risk would be. So I, you know, 
On my end, I'm a little bit more conservative, I think, in my estimates than a lot of folks. And that's mainly because I come from a background focused more on public health and epidemiology rather than a focus sort of on you know precision medicine and sort of that 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 background. Right. Um, and so you know there are sort of two answers for this. The, the first answer is that it's already being rolled out in the clinic. There are definitely clinics both within the United States as well as internationally where you can go into the clinic and say you have a, a, heart, um, a family history of heart disease and you want to know your risk and they will calculate your risk and they'll give you an idea of where your risk falls um, in terms of the, the entire distribution of folks. So you have more risk than the average person, less risk, things like that to help you um, sort of understand your health. Now, those are really concentrated at certain maybe academic medical centers, some direct to consumer testing companies. Uh, so that's sort of one answer. The other answer is that within genetic, genetics and genomic health, we have vast disparities in who we're doing the research in. And so a lot of these scores that are being rolled out and these sort of, you know, revolutionary treatments and, and, and ways of looking at our health for precision medicine are really available for really only populations of European descent. And so you're really sort of narrowing the focus. And we know that a disproportionate amount of this burden of, of chronic disease and, and complex disease issues in the United States is in minority populations, a disproportionate amount, but they're being left behind. So there's sort of those, those two levels of answers of when it's gonna be available to everyone, which is, I, you know, honestly, I don't know. Um, that would require a lot more research um, sort of at all levels. And then where is it, you know, available to some, which is now. Um, and so, so that's the, the spectrum that we're looking at in terms of the timeline. Um, in terms of crystal ball, you know, the, the idea that you could roll into your, you know, your primary care um, physician's office and say, I want to know my risk for X, Y, and Z, and they'll get back to you. Um, I don't predict that'll happen anytime soon in the next few years. Um, but, you know, again, I, I definitely am more on the conservative end of things. And I spent uh, a few, several years in Silicon Valley during my postdoc. And so I definitely know that there are others who think that it's much closer right. um, in terms yeah. of timelines. Yeah. And I know from looking at your website that you're really interested in um, that disparity across different ethnicities of genomic resources. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, uh, well, maybe not aware of that, but potentially concerned about that. So I'll put up a link to your website. And um, unfortunately, we're out of time. And so I'll have to thank you for talking about a really interesting topic. And I hope to um, keep abreast of your research. Thank you so much for having me. That was geneticist and epidemiologist Genevieve Vosick. We spoke about her work standardizing what's called the polygenic risk score. This is a composite risk factor extracted from information on many individual genes that can contribute to a disorder or genetic characteristic. I'll provide a link to her lab website in the show notes. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Joel Parker is our executive producer and contributed the headline. I produced this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Claude Debussy. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and show notes. You can also subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.